Amen. Let's give God some praise this morning. Thank you so much for leading us, team. Friends, as you grab your seats, I'm going to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to 1 Samuel. Maybe it's on your phone. You can turn to that in the app, 1 Samuel. We'll be reading quite a bit in chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2, so it's, it'll be good uh, for you to see what's, uh, what we're kind of covering and working through in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. By the way, as we begin this morning, my name is John Wayne McMahon. I'm one of the pastors on staff at Marvin, lead pastor here in Core Worship. It is good to be with with you. If you're joining us online, either live or later on this week, or if you're new or visiting, uh, we don't take it for granted. Uh, thank you for trusting us with your time. It is always good when we can gather and worship together. Now, if you are just checking us out or visiting, we're in a kind of a weird season right now as far as preaching. We're not in a sermon series last week. Uh, we kind of moved into a part of the liturgical calendar where we celebrate All Saints Day. That was last Sunday. And then next Sunday is Christ the King. And so we're going to celebrate that and talk about what it means that Christ is our King and what it means for us to follow him as Lord. And in between was this kind of standalone day. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do today. Uh, and so I turn to the lectionary. The lectionary is lays out scriptures that uh, folks around the world will be looking at today and this week, and it landed on 1 Samuel chapter 2 in the Song of Hannah, uh, the Song of the Faithful One. I like to describe Hannah as the one who had absurd faith, strange faith in the face of difficulty and struggle. And so for many reasons, today will look a little different than what you're used to. And I think you'll see that pretty quickly as we begin. But for now, let's turn to scripture. First Samuel chapter one, starting in verse one. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elhu, the son of Tohu, and the son of Zuf, an Aphrodite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penaniah. Penaniah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to her sons and daughters. But Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you so downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for the day, all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. 
I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the Lord of Israel grant you what you have asked. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate something and her face was so no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. And so in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, because I asked the Lord for him. And then chapter two, Hannah's response. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks again for your presence here in this space. And I pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of this scripture, your holy word. Where we are empty, would you fill us? Where we are weak, would you strengthen us? Where we are wrong, would you correct us? And would you send us out once more? And God, I pray for myself that you'd speak through me or in spite of me, but may it be your message that's delivered. We love you and trust you. It's in Jesus' name. Let all God's people say, amen. Do you know those people who reveal God to you? Like those people that when you're around, they don't, you don't just see them, but in them you see a reflection of the divine. For me, it's Hannah. I barely knew her. She never even spoke to me, but she taught me more about faith than I ever imagined when I served and worked in the temple. Because of my family name, I didn't choose to be a priest, but because of my family name, I was a priest. And I went there often, spending lots of my time there, mostly helping Eli, the high priest, and his wretched children. Couldn't stand them. For our festivals, like the Feast of Tabernacles, that this story tells of, people would travel from all over the world to come, some out of duty, but some out of true pious worship. I'll never forget the mixed bag that was Elkanah's crew. You think your family is chaotic. You should see this family. Elkanah seemed like a decent man. And for reasons unknown, he had two wives, which can always be kind of complicated, if you know what I mean. And especially if God's history tells us anything. But it seemed he loved them well enough. Peninnah and Hannah, these were his two wives. And Peninnah had provided numerous children for Elkanah. In an understandable fight for status in society, she wanted to have as many children as possible because maybe in having children, she would be provided security in ways that she wouldn't without them. And Hannah learned the hard way that that was the case. But Peninnah would let Hannah know how she felt about it. She would be ruthless to Hannah, who was unable to have children. Hannah wore this pain like it was part of her story, but her suffering in the midst of it was something that affected us all. To see how she suffered had an impact on everyone that was paying attention. 
See, every year for the Feast of Tabernacles, Elkanah and his crew, his two wives and their children, they would make the journey to Shiloh, to the temple. They would come see us and make these offerings. And you know that the Feast of Tabernacles is when we remember the time that God was faithful in the midst of the wilderness, that he was always there for us. And we didn't know how ironic it would be for Hannah to come into that place because little did we know she was in the middle of her worst wilderness. So every year they would come faithful, make these offerings, but no one understood the pain that Hannah felt. See, here's the deal. No one fully saw Hannah, not even the ones that you would expect to, the ones that were closest to her. Take the other wife, Peninnah, for a second blinded by her own pursuit of status in a world that would not recognize her otherwise, detached from her kids, she taunted Hannah. Do you know those parents that brag about their children way too much, right? They show you all the pictures when you have somewhere to be. And sometimes those people don't have the social awareness to know that's not always the best move, right? Maybe they're around someone who's lost a loved child or they're around someone in Hannah's case that can't have children. And so she was so socially unaware, maybe, or maybe she was just mean. And that's how she was towards Hannah. No one understood Hannah's pain. No one fully saw her, not even her husband, Elkanah. He was a little more aware than the other wife, but not much. When it came time for sacrifice, he would give Hannah a double blessing of the meat. He would give this shallow, but don't you know that I love you? Like saying I love you to her would somehow take away all of the deep hurt and pain that she was feeling, thinking that he could erase the hurt with shallow gestures. No one understood Hannah's pain no one actually saw her. What about Eli's boys? Man, they were wretched. And they were silent. They could have been worse, I guess. But they just went through the motions of doing the religious acts. Hopefully it would be a band-aid that would help Hannah to feel better. Have you ever been close to someone in the church that thought if you just prayed a little bit more, everything would be okay? So let's just go through the religious motions. No one understood her pain no one saw her, not even the high priest, Eli. See, when Hannah wept and prayed for God to give her a child from the depths of her heart, do you know what Eli said? Are you drunk, woman? Why are you so emotional? Why are you crying? No one understood the pain. No one fully saw her. Let's be honest. I didn't know what that pain was either. Very far removed. I've never been on the journey that she was on, but just watching all of these characters play out in a story of inhuman disconnect. But Hannah talked to someone who seemed to be listening. She talked to someone that actually knew her pain. Through it all, she talked to God about this thing like God was actually listening. And this was strange for me, if I'm gonna be honest, even as a priest in the temple, to see someone pray in this way, to carry this faith when things look so hard, it was strange. How can you pray when everything is difficult or going the wrong direction? How can you trust when there is no sign of a remedy for that which ails you? And then everything changed for Hannah. Hannah. Well, almost everything. 
See, a few years pass and one year Elkanah shows up with his crew and he's coming into the temple. I notice immediately that Hannah is not with him. And I remember thinking, goodness, grief has finally overcome her. But that wasn't the case. Elkanah told Eli and the sons that the miracle happened, that God provided. God answered a prayer and Hannah was with child. And later when the baby was old enough, she would come herself and bring this child to dedicate her, to dedicate the child to God. Even the absent-minded, wretched kids of Eli and Eli himself were moved. They could see this faith that was so strong in her. And in an act of worship and in response, she began to pray again. Actually, she began to sing. Look at what she says. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. See, here's the thing. Everything changed but not quite everything. Hannah seemed to have the same faith in loss as she did in victory. She was not praying like someone who finally got what she wanted. She was praying like she was talking or singing to the one who was singing with her in the dark days and in the good days. She seemed like someone who knew well, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But also knew well, not my will, but yours be done. What kind of faith is this? And do I, a priest, do I know the kind of faith in God that will praise him in the difficulty as much as I praise him when things go right? How do I handle those times of anguish? Or is my faith reduced to transactional history? And friends, for all of us, how often do we talk to him? Is it only when we need him? Is it only in the times of crisis? I wanna invite us in a few moments to just enter a time of reflection and prayer. I'm gonna prompt you and lead you through it. I think if we're honest, too often we go our whole week without talking to God. And you're stuck with me right now, unless you get up and leave, and that'd be awkward because everyone would see you. And so I wanna walk us through that time with God for a few moments. What does it look like to have faith in those hard days? What does it look like to have faith in those boring days? You know, one of the things we were sharing backstage earlier is I think that too often we turn to God in crisis and y'all, God is faithful to show up in crisis. But I think what is better is if we turn to God every time leading up to crisis so that in crisis, we already believe that he's good and he's with us. And I think that's the faith that we see of Hannah. So the first question I put before you, however you feel called in prayer, if you wanna bow your heads or close your eyes, if you wanna come to the kneelers, they're open, but I'm gonna lead us through a few questions. The first one is a check-in. How is your life in God? You know, in transformative uh, small groups, we, uh, we phrase it this way. Uh, I might ask you what it means to be a child of God and you could tell me the right answer. You could give me the right scripture you could give me the Sunday school answer. But if I were to ask you, how are you living like a son or daughter of God? That's a game changer, right? That's a little bit harder. And so the first one is a check-in. 
How is your life in God? Talk to him. Maybe you haven't at all this week. Let's spend some time there. Let's go to him in prayer. staying in that posture of prayer, the next question I want to invite you to consider is what do you need from God this morning? Not material things, but his character. What do you need from him? Do you need to know more of his wisdom today because you're facing something that's perplexing? Do you need to be reminded that he is good? Do you need to be reminded that he's present? Do you need to be reminded that he is loved today? Do you need healing and wholeness? What do you need from him? Ask him. For scripture tells us that we can come to him confidently that he hears our prayers. What do you need from God this morning? And the last question I invite you to consider this morning is what do you need to confess? Phoebe Palmer would say that only on the altar can we receive the fire. What do you need to leave here today? What lie have you been believing about yourself or about God? What thing are you walking in that's holding you back? What sin are you caught in? What do you need to confess and leave? It could be an addiction and it could be apathy. Both of them lead to death. What do you need to leave at the altar today?